This is Guns and Butter. Freemasonry gets its hold in America uh, because it was able to grab onto the American Revolution and say, we are the antidote to these terrible religious wars. But what they were really doing was, is they were institutionalizing this rule by a cryptocracy, rule by the secrets keepers. They were undermining the courts. They were uh, suborning jurors. And so people who were not Freemasons were at a disadvantage. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Alchemical Processing of Humanity Through Public Psychodrama. Michael Hoffman is a New York native and former reporter for the New York Bureau of the Associated Press. He studied under Fayez Abu Jabir at the State University of New York at Oswego. He is the author of nine books. His most recent is The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. Today we discuss his book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare, published in April 2001, that focuses on the revelation of the method, or the doctrine of making manifest all that is hidden, the occult cryptocracy, Freemasonry, synchronicity, and advanced mind control. Michael Hoffman, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. It's good to be here. I've just read your incredible book, Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. In the chapter, Episodic Revelation and the Lone Nut Syndrome, is an excerpt from your book that I first read in another book that strongly resonated with me. You write, quote, The following is a statement which comes from within the British intelligence wing of the cryptocracy. Quote, This demonstrates one of our simpler methods. Realizing that our activities will sooner or later come to light, we structure our activities so that as conspiracy researchers unravel them, they will release information into the public consciousness in such a way that it mirrors our initiatory procedure. In this way, the more we are investigated, the more masses of people are psychologically processed by the very people who seek to expose us. The meme that constitutes our essential structure is then successfully mimicked within the consciousness of those who investigate us. Success can then be measured precisely to the extent that our work is exposed. When I read that, I thought, yes, that's it. I had never read such a potent description of what is going on. We could certainly spend the hour discussing this one paragraph. Where did you come across this description of what you term the method? The revelation of the method actually comes from my mentor, James Shelby Downard. I met him in St. Petersburg, Florida in the mid-1970s, and he was a very unusual man. He walked the, uh, the razor edge between genius and eccentricity. But he had a mind where he was able to see and detect patterns. And also he had a historian's mind in terms of the uh, research that he did. And he was the one that set me on this path of the revelation of the method. He also called it must be or uh, the making manifest of all that is hidden. And in the sense that in the very 
last days, not necessarily the last days of the planet or some eschatology like that, but in the last days of this grand conspiracy, which he centered and I center also in Great Britain as a initial starting point for it. And there are many other starting points, but that's perhaps the major one. Uh, what was set in motion in terms of what we saw with the first atomic bomb blast, the creation and destruction of primordial matter at the Trinity site on the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude in New Mexico, and then the assassination of Kennedy, the killing of the King Wright in 1963, close to the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude. And then Mr. Downard added to that the revelation of the method, that the way that the system would deal with this is by first suppressing it and then letting its own critics and investigators of the phenomenon be the ones who actually emblazoned and embellished their own invulnerability as they're very much concerned about projecting a sense that they are virtuoso uh, criminal masterminds, which indeed they are, but they're actually invested in having that set forth because it demoralizes people and it encourages a great deal of the apathy and abulia or lack of will that we're seeing in the people today. And what do you mean by the term cryptocracy? That was Walter Bauert came up with that, um, Operation Mind Control, a seminal book, um, also from the 1970s, I believe. And uh, the cryptocracy would be ruled by secrets. But of course, uh, as they approach this terminal phase, having accomplished so many of their objectives, there's less and less a reliance on keeping secrets. Now, of course, some secrets have to be kept in the short term, but Mr. Downer talked about the cryonic process of freeze and thaw so that initially there are secrets kept. For example, if you look at the uh, Las Vegas uh, shooting massacre in uh, the fall of 2017, you see the lone nut meme that was put forth there. The U.S. media reported the next day, October 2nd, quote, police believe Paddock act alone in executing the deadliest mass shooting in, in, in modern history. Well, I'm a former reporter for the Associated Press and that rubs my journalistic instincts wrong when I see that less than a day after the atrocity, when a thorough investigation should have just begun, police were establishing the grounds for a lone nut meme that Paddock acted alone and he certainly had uh, no support. Although that was, even though that was implanted in the mines, less than 24 hours later, uh, Las Vegas Sheriff Lombardo shattered it like a broken mirror, saying that he couldn't actually countenance the idea that such a uh, extensive massacre was the work of one man. So that was um, that was telescoping the whole process uh, into a much shorter scenario than what we saw with David Berkowitz, for example, who again repeating this pattern where they arrested the so-called son of Sam Killer in 1977 in New York City, declared him to be the lone nut who was responsible immediately after his arrest, again, when the investigation should have begun in earnest. And then later on, Maury Terry and others wrote uh, big books about the extensive connections that uh, David Berkowitz had and that there was no way he could have done all of those uh, heinous murders in the same way that Ted Kaczynski, who has been a very willing scapegoat in the process of labeling him a lone nut, and there, there's no way that he was solely the only uh, Unabomber or university and airline bomber. So we see these patterns, and it's a case of taking them step by step and understanding the ultimate uh, design here, which is the processing of humanity. 
You write that, quote, the occult cryptocracy processes the group mind of the masses mainly through psychodrama. What is an example of this psychodrama? Well, if you're a Roman Catholic who lived long enough, uh, then you know something as the Tridentine Latin Mass, which was derogated in 1969 by uh, Pope Paul VI. Prior to that, it was the main ritual of Catholic worshipers. And in there, you're watching a psychodrama, which I, I'm not suggesting is uh, malignant, but it is one of the most, uh, Joseph Campbell called it uh, one of the most fantastic ritual enactments in Western civilization. And uh, if you watch it, every gesture of the priest, whether it's his fingers, his hands, his movements, are all orchestrated and they all have meaning and significance. And so for older Catholics who have been percipients at that from their childhood onward, I think there's a greater understanding and acceptance of what you mean by psychodrama because what the church did with the Tridentine Latin Mass was it was able to imprint on the minds of the percipients a tremendous sense of awe and reverence for what was being enacted on that altar, apart from the truth or falsity of the dogma behind it. And uh, by the same token, there is a power and ritual. Now, uh, in terms of pop culture, it's been exaggerated out of all proportion, the so-called Black Mass, which is supposed to be a mirror of uh, the Tridentine Latin Mass. However, there is some sense to that. In the reversal of that Mass and the use of uh, gestures and symbols, which are very carefully orchestrated down to the minutest detail, the minds of people can indeed be processed. And the question I raised in Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare is, what if there is a civic magic by which a kind of open-air ritual a kind of open-air mass, if you will, is being conducted through these various uh, ceremonial killings that we saw. Um, they've, uh, they've tapered off the kinds of killings like Berkowitz was engaged in and the Hillside Strangler with a tremendous amount of symbolism connected to them. We haven't seen as much of that recently. We've been inundated more with these uh, mass shootings. But nonetheless, that was the question that I asked, and I sought to answer it by looking for parallels in terms of this uh, intricate symbolism, very carefully orchestrated. And one of the purposes of the book is to try and document that in the various cases that I enumerate. Well, what is the alchemical process or alchemical processing? Well, the alchemical processing would go all the way back to the medieval era. And, of course, the cover story is that it was the pursuit of uh, base metals and turning them into gold. And that in the, in the course of that, modern science arose and the rules of evidence arose, and that was a wonderful thing. That's the cover story. But underneath that, the esoteric reality of that was is that humanity or subhumanity, because whenever you're dealing with secret societies, there's always an inner and an outer. So the inner elite are always superior to the Cowans, as the Freemasons would call them, C-O-W-A-N-S, the non-initiates. And what you have in uh, the metaphysical alchemy is the base metal, which is base humanity, which is supposed to be against their will and without their consent, because much of the occult is about tricking people into enlightenment. Again, that's the euphemism for what I regard as deception. 
and including hypnotic deception. And so in the course of that, we have a process which has been ongoing since the medieval era. And uh, it has been more and more refined over the ages. Uh, Salve et coagula, break down and reform. Break down humanity and reform humanity in the image and likeness of the cryptocracy that rules over them. And people have studied this from many different points on the uh, spectrum of how you can approach it. My own approach has been largely because I was a reporter in New York. Uh, my approach has been these ritual murders. One of the cases that I first studied was the double initial murders in Rochester, New York of young girls. And uh, that's never been solved. And um, the United States Secret Service was on the scene of uh, one of those uh, killings. And again, that raised my interest tremendously. Why on earth would the U.S. Secret Service be present uh, on a case of what the media and the police were saying was a lone nut who uh, was a psychopathic hater of young girls. And yet there were many symbolical connections. Uh, there were symbols that were set up in the course of that. And again, in my own mind, it seemed to me that that was a kind of process. And uh, so that's where I, my investigation has begun in terms of the alchemical processing of humanity. I'm speaking with author and researcher Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Alchemical Processing of Humanity Through Public Psychodrama. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is an example of the operation of what you term the revelation of the method? I would say probably um, the greatest conspiracy of the 20th century, which uh, had a tremendous impact on me, I was a child when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, was the assassination of President Kennedy. And uh, that was an intense uh, emphasis on a lone nut, Lee Harvey Oswald, the lone nut. Almost no one believes that today because uh, according to the freeze-thaw process, um, the uh, evidence about other conspirators was frozen at the time. And since then, there's been a tremendous thawing. Um, whether it's uh, D.A. Garrison's investigation or uh, the movie JFK or many of the uh, far more credible investigations that the J.F. Kennedy conspiracy investigating community, which is ongoing, uh, has been engaged in. And I think there's if you took a poll and I believe polls have been taken, I think that there's at least 50 percent of the American people uh, no way believe uh, that uh, the president of the United States was killed in broad daylight by uh, one uh, talented assassin and, and a talented couple of rifle bullets. So that would be an example of this thawing process where people are aware that it's almost like a type of uh, boasting, almost um, a, uh, a, a thumbing their noses at us. Because if you look back to the 18th century Hellfire Club of Sir Francis Dashwood, of which uh, Benjamin Franklin was affiliated, one part of that was the idea that they were laughing at the non-initiates. They were mocking them, including people who were victims of their various pranks, as they called them, although Franklin was actually uh, implicated in the murder of a uh, Masonic candidate in Philadelphia in his younger years. So these, were, uh, these could be homicidal pranks. And I see some of that in this revelation of the method connected to Kennedy, 
Um, half the country believes that there was a conspiracy, and yet there's never anyone brought to justice for it. And now, of course, it's so late that you know the main corpus of the conspirators, uh, they've passed away. But I remember um, I had an opportunity to interview the movie actor Woody Harrelson, and he and I had had a mutual friend, and he asked me about the mutual friend. And I thought to myself, I can spend a half hour in a very pleasant conversation with this famous man and an accomplished actor, or I can uh, cut to the chase and start asking him about whether or not his father, Charles Harrelson, was one of the uh, shooters of President Kennedy. And that's what I did uh, indeed uh, go ahead and do. And Woody at, at that point proceeded to start crying, and that was largely the end of the interview when I asked him, did your father kill Kennedy? And, and we didn't get much farther than that. But my point is, is that my goal was to get to Harrelson while he was still alive, I mean, Harrelson Elder, while he was still alive in prison, in an attempt to bring a prosecution of whoever was still uh, a survivor, whoever was still alive, who had conspired to kill President Kennedy. Instead, those people are now long dead, and the seeming apparent invincibility of the conspirators is ever more um, uh, burnished as a result of these revelations of the method which have occurred. So it's very much in their interest, after they've gotten away with impunity in these horrible crimes which sear the souls of America, then to be able to sort of advertise it through the very people who uh, it is their goal to try and expose it. And I think if you look psychologically, and my book discusses this, at the transformation of the American people uh, prior to the Kennedy assassination, this may seem trivial to me, it's important. Uh, Americans largely wore cotton clothes. These clothes did not have rude colors. Uh, after the Kennedy assassination, polyester clothes became popular. People were wearing clown-like orange colors. Um, it was in February, I believe, uh, in, the, uh, in 1964, the Beatles came along saying they wanted to hold your hand as a sense of healing America. And yet you look at John, um, John Lennon's strange death in New York City where he showed up with leaves in his clothing when he was um, taken to the hospital. I believe that's also in my book as a sense of a vegetative sacrifice, which I go into more in the killing of the king, right? You'll recall in Apocalypse Now, Francis Ford Coppola's film about Vietnam toward the end when um, the uh, protagonist goes in front of Colonel Kurtz, he sees the, the golden bow of uh, Sir James Frazier, the book, the series of books, and it's the killing of the king, right, which is shown. In other words, uh, Brando's character, Colonel Kurtz, is going to be sacrificed as a, as a king as you know, in ancient times, the killing of the king was a fertility rite, which was believed to green the earth and help the vegetation to grow. Uh, I know these things can, can sound far-fetched in, in a short interview like this, and that's why really people have to uh, dedicate themselves to deep reading and their own study in order to, uh, I think, you know, make it more credible and understand what we're dealing with, because in some ways it's more fantastic than the human mind almost can deal with. And why would they want their method revealed? Because if we, if we have a sense, and I think we do have a sense, that these are supremely powerful people against whom resistance is useless, then uh, that extends their power exponentially. And also, I believe that it, it takes people into what my book mentions is the Videodrome, 
And there was a film of that name, uh, again, in the 1970s, a very important decade in the history of America, in my opinion. Um, and so there you have uh, where people are looking for the next thrill. There's what's, what's come out of conspiracy theory is not entirely healthful. Um, and it's the idea that it's almost morbidly sick, some aspects of conspiracy theory, in that they have, they've processed less from investigators seeking prosecutions and bringing uh, criminal perpetrators to justice than um, uh, emblazoning the power of this technology, this occult technology and the people who are behind it and sitting in awe. Uh, and of course, the uh, inducing awe in people is to induce paralysis in them and a type of shock. And so we've become addicted to the thrills of finding out what our slave masters are doing to us. And rather than engaging us in a counter reaction, such as would have happened in a different era, by the way, which is important to note, the making manifest of hidden, the revelation of the method couldn't have been done in the early 20th century, much less in years before that, the people were so healthy that their reaction would have been a type of pitchfork peasant revolt. It had to wait for the time when we've been so heavily indoctrinated by this entire system that we sit back and see it as part of this videodrome of a plethora of fast-moving images, thrills. And so we become less human in the course of that and we're relegated almost to the status of Frankenstein's monster, where the only way we can feel alive is by getting more shocks to our system. And these shocks translate into these various forms of occult psychodrama, whether it's the Las Vegas shootings or uh, some of these other uh, ritual murders. And uh, it becomes a morbid type of a thing where instead of acting against this evil, we're actually participating in it in a type of awe, which has frozen our capacity to act. And Michael, I forgot to mention that you wrote and published Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare before the events of September 11th, 2001. So you were into all of this way before the seminal criminal event of the 21st century. Well, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, and I did believe that the year 2001, the book was published in April of that year. There had been other iterations of it prior to that, but the final edition was published in, in April of 2001. And I saw 2001 as the gateway. You can see from the cover of the book, it has uh, the obelisk that was put up on New Year's Day 2001 in the Seattle, Washington area related to uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Uh, by Kubrick, which goes back to Arthur C. Clarke's story, The Sentinel, about this mute obelisk and uh, its influence over, uh, as, as uh, Kubrick related it, to the number or the year 2001. And then I uh, went into the concept of blackjack and the number 21. And so for me, 2001 was going to be the gateway into an attempt of a, um, a greater suppression of humanity on the road to bestializing us and to taking us from human beings in a process of reversing evolution, a process of devolution uh, from human beings into people who are more or less their lives are demarcated by machine intelligence and so-called virtual reality. 
I was really glad to see that you went into Kubrick's uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey because I saw that film that was had so much hype behind it when it came out, and I was very disappointed in it. I really didn't like it. And I remember thinking, and I was quite young then, I, I remember thinking, this is supposed to be evolution? There didn't seem to be any evolution of humans. It was all of this high-tech stuff. It was awful, I thought. Well, and then maybe that's the point, that what they're doing is, in terms of the revelation of the method, rather than positing this utopia that we've been sold on, they're actually showing you that it is, in fact, a dystopia. And uh, that may have been the point of the whole film. Right, because it seems like the film was about the evolution of machines and not people. And the control over us. Exactly. What is the doctrine of making manifest all that is hidden? Basically the same as the revelation of the method. I mean, the two are largely synonymous. Uh, you do have a line in uh, the book of Luke in the New Testament saying there is nothing that is hidden that will not be revealed. Uh, but so I, I would consider it a, a universal principle in the sense that uh, in the way that we are controlled, we're controlled by uh, one of the great shocks is to have a revelation timed uh, at a particularly inauspicious occasion for us. Let's say to give an example, um, um, a woman thinks she has a, a faithful husband and she's invested heavily her love, her emotions and her life and in, in, in him. And um, a slideshow is being given that evening, a family slideshow. And in the course of it, uh, she's relaxing and the family's gathered around. And one of the slides that her husband shows very quickly is, is him in a nude embrace with uh, the neighbor's wife. And uh, his wife can't believe what she saw. So our, our sense when that happens is, is to question ourselves and deny what we saw uh, psychologically. And so then she says, please go back to that slide. I, I, I think I saw something there. Of course, he's quickly removed that slide. And now all she has is a vague hint that her husband was embracing another woman in a sexual situation, and that's a tremendous violation of her marriage. Now, she can't be certain of that because he denies it the whole time, and yet her own eyes actually saw it for a half a second or a second. I would say that that's probably a good working uh, example of the making manifest of all that is hidden in terms of the psychological impact on us the sense of destabilization, uncertainty, and paranoia which it inculcates. Now, we can also take a more benign example of the making manifest of all that is hidden. We can say, for example, uh, in the Wall Street Journal this week, we're, we're speaking in, in January here, and right on the front page it talks about how a, a group that was supposedly aligned with Iran fired a few mortars into the U.S. Uh, compound in Baghdad, and uh, John Bolton was ready to uh, launch a military strike against Iran as a result of that. Now, that type of revelation of the method works against them, that making manifest of all that is hidden. And, we, you know, we see it quite often when, whether we can expose Richard Nixon or uh, the crimes of Bill Clinton in uh, Serbia or the crimes of George W. Bush in Iraq and Afghanistan. Certainly not all revelations are malign and not all uh, manifestations of uh, secrecy that are brought into the light 
are malignant. They're quite often very helpful. But when they're done in the way that I gave uh, in terms of this analogy of the slideshow, then you can see the impact when it's done in that uh, sinister type of setting and circumstances. I'm speaking with author and researcher Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Alchemical Processing of Humanity Through Public Psychodrama. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you explain how public psychodrama and public ritual constitute advanced mind control? Well, the first thing that a hypnotist, a really uh, uh, accomplished hypnotist wants to do is to convince you that you're not being hypnotized. Uh, in the book, I start out with a quote from J.H. Townsend's book, Clowns, where he talks about a man who is giving a talk and a clown keeps popping his head out and interrupting him. And the audience eventually forgets that there's a sales pitch being given. And once they've forgotten that, then the real sales pitch begins. And this is what we're really seeing with this type of control is we're consistently told by the system over and over again, especially now since the internet has come into the fore, that there are only trusted news sources and that everything else is uh, is untrustworthy. You know, the New York Times is trustworthy, and and CBS News is trustworthy, and the alternates are not. And so they insist on that absurd proposition, and by doing so, it creates a tension between one type of reality, the official reality that they promulgate, and then those of us who are in the alternate media, which you certainly are, uh, Bonnie, with your show here. And uh, so the one militates against the other. And in the tension of the two, how is that exploited? And it's exploited in terms of rituals. For example, um, the movie They Live, which for some reason has people able to, uh, in that movie by John Carpenter, I believe, they're able to process the hidden symbolism that's embedded in um, billboards and television and signs using something that uh, they call the Hoffman lenses. I don't know whether that's a reference to me or not, but you put on the Hoffman lenses and you can see these things. And on the campuses of uh, colleges in America, he's now largely forgotten, but in the 1970s, a man with the interesting name Wilson Bryan Key, K-E-Y, he seemed to have a key to America's subliminal advertising because I was at uh, one of the colleges in upstate New York where he visited with his slideshow, and he showed us embedded in the whiskey ads and the, the food ads and the glossy magazines these hidden pictures and symbolism, whether it was skulls or sexual genitalia or what have you, and he did a very good job of documenting this uh, hidden control. Well, you know, that's now become a cliche. People can say, well, that's old hat, but I think the problem in seeing that as cliched and the idea that we're now too adult and too mature to even worry about that is that the control process is still in effect. We've done very little to enact legislation or some other type of vigilance in terms of uh, it's illegal to manipulate people without their consent in terms of these subliminals. And so the fact that we are processed beyond that and sort of subliminally told that if we're really hip, we won't, we'll just laugh at things like that. In fact, some people want to submit to their own processing. I mean, out in the Bay Area, of California, you have the singularity movement, which is looking forward to the rule uh, of the uh, of the world by machine intelligence, by so-called AI. So people, 
it seems to me, are more and more willing to submit to this kind of thraldom rather to resist it. And the byproduct of that is this enormous ritual uh, presence that we've had in these various ways. What is Freemasonry and where did it come from? Well, I would say I wrote a book called The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, and I would say that much of what we understand about the left-right dichotomy, which is only a product of the 1789 French National Assembly, it's no older than that, but the idea that there was this group of freedom fighters on the left, and they were opposing the uptight, uh, stultifying church on the right, I think that's a, a cartoon of an actual reality which we can go back to the Abbey of Thelema, Francois Rabelais' story of this philosophical utopia. And yet, when you look underneath what Thelema represents, it represents a kind of counter-church with rules that are even more tyrannical than the mainstream Christian church that it was established to undercut. And so coming out of, just very briefly, um, Coming out of the Neoplatonic Hermetic world of Florentine uh, Italy in the middle of the 15th century, as this began to enter the Catholic Church, even though I, I'm well aware that the official story is the Church at this time and for centuries following was wholly reactionary and right-wing and so forth, that's not actually the truth. It remained that way for the people in the pews because they would have revolted otherwise. They were in no way ready for anything else. But in the hierarchy, beginning with uh, Reverend Father Marsilio Ficino and uh, Count Giovanni Pico Mirandola, who Dame Frances Yates, one of the great historians of the occult, believes was probably the key guy for a, a three or four hundred year period in studying the occult, they brought the Kabbalistic Gnosis, again, which the New Age believes is all benign and so forth. I do not, uh, basically because it's a, uh, a secrets-keeping, two-tiered system of the inner and the outer, and there are other reasons as well. Anyhow, to be as brief as possible, this infiltrated the Vatican, uh, certainly by the time you had the first Medici Pope, Leo X, later on the second Medici Pope, Clement VII. You also had the overthrow of the church's great strictures against the renting of money. And if you do not uh, forbid interest on money, you will inevitably be ruled by the money power. So all of these things conspired together to create um, a kind of Western secret society gnosis, which was propelled out of the highest echelons of Rome, and then uh, uh, took um, it found fertile ground in in Great Britain. Now we can say, well, Britain was Protestant and uh, you know, Rome was Catholic, and these are two opposites. Well, there's such a thing as symbiosis, and there's also such a thing as as anomalous data, which uh, we need to uh, account for. One of them, for example, is is that uh, when Henry VIII's divorce case came up, uh, he actually his his ambassadors were in Rome. Uh, talking to rabbis and proto-Protestants about how to get out of that marriage. So uh, there is a, a symbiotic impact here. Okay, so Freemasonry, we're told, came up out of the 18th century uh, in Great Britain. It was founded in that era, and it was it, completely inimical to Catholicism. What I would actually say is, is that if you take a look at General Motors and Ford, they were both rivals and to a certain degree enemies, but they were both promoting the automobile in America. And the same thing was true of the Western Secret Society 
as it was taking hold in Europe. The Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, or the Protestant occult church, which began to arise with Queen Elizabeth I, uh, they were rivals, but they were promoting the same model of secret society governance. And so the Freemasons, uh, understandably, had a magnetic attraction to good people. I believe Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were fundamentally good. I, I know that you know they had, had a sort of invincible ignorance about uh, uh, what they were doing with black slaves and, and so forth, but I still believe that they were essentially good. I don't think we can necessarily judge people from the 21st century you know, entirely, but anyhow, I digress. So Jefferson, Washington, uh, the Adamses in uh, New England, Freemasonry offered a completely refreshing view of the world in the, in the uh, advertising slogan that it put out, that it was above ideology, that it was above religion. And the men of the uh, American Enlightenment, like Jefferson, had watched in horror as Protestants and Catholics slaughtered each other in these wars of religion. Uh, throughout the 16th and 17th centuries with an enormous loss of innocent life. And they swore that in the new world that would not be allowed. And Freemasonry seemed to them to be, even though, for example, Jefferson never joined the Masons, uh, but Freemasonry seemed to be the vehicle by which America could be could rise above that horrible old world formula. And I relate it roughly, it's not an exact analogy, but I relate it to sort of the hippie movement in the 1960s and 70s, people refreshingly breaking the bounds of what had seemed to be a stultifying way of life in America. And then we begin to see what happened with the hippie movement in terms of the drugs and, and so forth. But uh, there was a reaction to Freemasonry because, first of all, the much maligned Puritans, and I don't want to debate the the virtues or lack thereof here, but one thing good about the Puritans was they had a tremendous animus against secret societies. And Puritanism per se, long after the Calvinist doctrine had been abandoned, was still in force as a kind of cultural artifact in the people, uh, the founding uh, English people of America. So there was a resistance to Freemasonry on the part of those Puritanical type people. And also, as I say, Jefferson, especially in old age, when you read his correspondence with John Adams, and uh, some of his uh, skepticism towards the occult is there, certainly. But anyhow, uh, Freemasonry gets its hold in America uh, and because it was able to grab onto the American Revolution and say, we are the antidote to these terrible religious wars. But what they were really doing was, is they were institutionalizing this rule by a cryptocracy, rule by the secrets keepers. They were undermining the courts. They were uh, suborning jurors. Uh, they were part of a corrupt mass of men who used secret signs and symbolism to tell the arresting cop when they were pulled over for speeding that they were on the level. You know, as they say, are, we meet on the level. Are you, some of these words have entered our language. Are, are you on the square? Are you a square dealer? That all comes from Masonic Lodge language. And so people who were not Freemasons were at a disadvantage. And one of the things that isn't very well known, it does come out in the Nation of Islam's um, a two volume series on the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, that the Ku Klux Klan was Masonic. And my mentor, James Shelby Downard, was one of the first to bring this up. It was a, it was a Masonic organization 
and and so a lot of the depredations against black people in the South were Masonic, and yet Freemasonry advertises itself as being the opposite of that, you know, an enlightened uh, organization. But President John F. Kennedy was thoroughly opposed to secret societies. Uh, he was not an initiate. He was a, not a member of the cryptocracy. And toward the end of his life, he wanted to get us out of Vietnam. That's fairly well known. And so he, he was someone who was kind of an abrasive uh, factor there. And then when you had William Morgan in 1826, uh, he published his book, The Three Degrees of Freemasonry, violated uh, the oath of secrecy, which is very solemn. The ninth degree of Scottish Rite Freemasonry uh, shows uh, the man who violates the oath of secrecy being beheaded. It's dedicated to revenge uh, officially against the murderers of Hiram, uh, the architect of the Temple of Solomon, but actually what's being conveyed is this is what happens to informants. And so Morgan was one of those informants because he was a, a, an early day whistleblower who was exposing what the Masonic networks were doing to America. He was subsequently kidnapped from the jail. The, the sheriff of Ontario County in New York, where he was kept in the Canandaigua jail, was a Mason. He was kidnapped out of there and drowned. Uh, and then you had uh, former President John Quincy Adams took up the cause, probably the most illustrious uh, person to take up the cause of anti-Masonry in America. And also you had many uh, members of Lincoln's cabinet who were uh, anti-Masonic. And what you actually see in the war between the states is you see many anti-Masons in, um, in the northern administration of, of President Lincoln and many high-level Freemasons in the administration of Jeff Davis in the South. Now, that's not to say by any means that there weren't Masons involved in the uh, in, in the North. There were. But it, it seems to me that the Confederacy was far more Masonic. And, of course, the most powerful uh, Freemason to emerge from the Civil War uh, would be Albert Pike, who was Grand Commander of the Southern Rite of Scottish Freemasonry. There are a number of different branches, York Rite, Scottish Rite, Scottish Rite turned out to be the most powerful. So Freemasonry is woven into the history of America. It's largely on the eclipse now. It used to be the master mason in your local town was a top lawyer or top surgeon, physician, some illustrious person like that. Now it could be a member of the working class uh, because they've accomplished most of the objectives that were set out for them. And therefore, uh, they're no longer needed uh, in the same sense that you recall when uh, John Kerry was running against George W. Bush, both were members of the Skull and Bone Secret Society at Yale University. So whether we chose Kerry or whether we chose Bush, we were getting a secret society initiative. And notoriously, Bush told the late Tim Russert in an interview when he was asked to talk about uh, his membership in Skull and Bones, he said, I can't do it. It's too secret. So they're openly admitting their uh, thraldom to this, uh, this cryptocracy. It's quite, it's quite a thing in America. I'm speaking with author and researcher Michael Hoffman. Today's show, The Alchemical Processing of Humanity Through Public Psychodrama. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, in your description of Freemasonry, it sounds like there was a positive element to it, but then it degenerated and became more of a negative uh, influence. Now, you've just said that Freemasonry is basically on the wane because they pretty much accomplished all of their objectives. What were their objectives? Well, first of all, to set up a corrupt, uh, invisible empire, as the Klan was known in the South, 
uh, a second government, a covert government, because I think the I understand that there is a tremendous rancor now against the American Revolution as we study more and more uh, the dimensions of the Holocaust against black people that was black enslavement. I understand that very well. However, I'm not willing to uh, completely nullify what the U.S. Constitution, which when it was reformed after the Civil War, and the kind of liberty that it generated even long before the Civil War, especially for the yeomanry of America, who did not suffer the aristocratic uh, depredations that they had uh, in Great Britain, which is was kind of a holocaust against the yeomanry of uh, England, which is a, a separate topic for another time. But so that was one aspect of it, to create this second government. Because if you want to be a successful businessman, you wanted to be in government, one of the fastest routes to do that would be uh, membership in the Freemasons. And secondly, as far as specific objectives go, I would say that there are many aspects of the assassination of President Kennedy that were uh, involved Masonic symbolism, the killing of the King Wright. Uh, you look at the uh, Love Field in uh, Dallas, Texas, where he you know, he was chosen to uh, enter into, and James Shelby Downard and I wrote a pamphlet called King Kill 33, which goes into this at some uh, depth. Uh, but so anyhow, whether it's the assassination of President Kennedy or, or um, what was done to Martin Luther King, the black king, if you will, in Memphis, and notice again, this little Egypt area that was imposed on the map of the United States, Mr. Downard was very concerned with what he called mystical toponymy and how, uh, for example, in atomic physics, uh, the dictum that time relations among events are assumed to be first constituted by the specific physical relations obtaining between them. So in other words, what you can do is, according to the occult, I, because I uh, articulate these things, it doesn't mean that I believe them. I'm, I'm giving you their script that... Uh, events that take place along the same median, okay, let's talk about uh, the parallels of latitude. I mentioned earlier in the broadcast the 33rd degree of north parallel latitude. These were laid out by uh, Sir Christopher Wren from the Royal Naval Observatory at Greenwich, England. Of course, if we don't say Greenwich so fast and we slow it down, Greenwich, Greenwich, we might get the idea of what they were trying to do in this concept of greening of the earth from Greenwich or Greenwich, England. And so if you, uh, if you look at the killing of the black king in Memphis, Memphis was, of course, a principal city of pharaonic Egypt. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had some of his key debates against Stephen Douglas in the little Egypt area of Illinois, in Cairo. They pronounce it Cairo in that area. And um, in the minds of the Freemasons, the Mississippi was the Nile River. And much of Freemasonry, of course, being based on Egyptian paganism and on the Kabbalah, identifies very strongly with Egypt. After all, the symbol of the United States, the Great Seal, is the uh, incomplete pyramid. And so uh, I believe that Martin Luther King was ritually killed in fulfillment of that uh, process. So, yes, uh, I, I once wrote a column for Fortean Times magazine called America Mystica, and in many ways the history of America is almost synonymous with the history of these mystical organizations. Well, now the cryptocracy presently, would you say, is still in full force? Absolutely, more so than ever. What role do coincidence and synchronicity play in the power of secret societies and their machinations? So 
Mr. Downard believed that, that the human mind was fantastically more powerful than you know we understand it to be, and that there is an ability of this group mind uh, that I talked about earlier to either generate coincidences or to kind of surf coincidence in such a way, especially if they're being directed in some type of uh, manner, because the group might think of all those, you know, 100 million people watching a Super Bowl game, or as Mick Jagger uh, once said about the vast stadium audiences, where that one mind was concentrating on this dancing little figure on the stage. And he, he made the statement, sometimes sex is, is better than that. And sometimes performance is better than sex when it's in that type of, he's, re he's receiving an erotic current from the crowd magnified exponentially by the numbers that are there. And so Mr. Downard speculated that that magnification coupled with some force being behind coincidence could actually create patterns. Now, if you go too far into this, you're going into madness. Okay, so we want to stay clear of that. But at the same time, what is sometimes called madness is a higher reality. And so if we make a distinction between the two and discipline ourselves to stay on one side of it, uh, we can begin to see that much of reality centers on what we give our attention to. So I remember that there was uh, a friend of mine, a fellow colleague in this field, who was at that time doing a great deal of research on the number 23, which there's now been a Jim Carrey movie made about, and it has entered the revelation of the method uh, terrain. Uh, but again, you saw it in the uh, paddock, so-called paddock shootings in Las Vegas because the number 23 and 33 featured prominently there. So my friend was uh, deeply interested in 23, and suddenly he started seeing 23s everywhere. There were 23s on license plates and the cars that were ahead of him. And he was at room 23 and platform 23. And I said to him, uh, I said, Don, what's happening here is your attention is gathering these things in a sort of funnel. And this information is being funneled to you. And, you know, in quantum mechanics now, in the farthest reaches of quantum mechanics, what they're discovering is, is that there's a whole field of phenomenon that only come into existence when we start paying attention to it. Now, that's not conspiracy theory. That's physics. And so this is, it's a study, it's, an, it's a study in progress. And since I'm not an initiate in the secret societies, even though I've had uh, Freemasons do something called a Mason on site where they try to put you under Masonic obligation. Uh, but so I'm, I'm not an initiate, but I can, I can speculate as to an ability or an attempt, maybe a mad attempt, to uh, shepherd coincidence in such a way as it aids this process that we've been talking about in terms of uh, the processing of humanity. We could begin to see a pattern which is not necessarily morbid and is not necessarily controlled by the cryptocracy that is actually very wonderful and magnificent. And it's just that these some of these criminal psychopaths have seized onto the technology and used it to their own means. But it might be that there's so much more of reality that we're not seeing in our shuttered little daily, day-to-day -day lives 
that um, could be brought out by tracking these coincidences, which might serve us very well and might serve uh, the cause of truth itself. I, I think that it's unfortunate that very ambitious, egotistical people have taken control over phenomena that may very well be neutral. You have written, quote, but this is the revelation of the method era. This is the time when they show us what they are doing to us. The method is revealed for all to see. So do you feel that the present day is some sort of a, a peak in this revelation of the method operation? Yes, I do. Um, we have been desensitized to these things. And the speed with which visual images are being processed, uh, many films, documentaries, advertisements will open up with uh, 50,000 images passing through our eyes in the matter of moments. Things like that where it would have been off-putting to people 30 or 40 years ago. They would have said, gee, that's, that's weird. I, you know, that, that's not human scale. You know, when, I, when I went to England and I saw Saxon architecture compared with the architecture that was created after the Normans, the Saxon architecture was all human scale. And the Norman architecture was the architecture we associate with, with the Middle Ages, like in York Minster, York Minster Cathedral with the world's largest stained glass, that gigantism, which incidentally you also see, for what it's worth, uh, in the American West. If you're in the East, you're in the Appalachian Mountains. I realize this is a process of, of erosion over you know many thousands of years, but you're in Appalachia and there's a more human scale uh, to the toponymy. If you're in the American West, there's the sense of gigantism. The natural monuments of the landscape are huge, and man and woman are shrunk in proportion to that. That's something that Mr. Downard wanted to study and, and, and wanted because he was fascinated by why was uh, New Mexico, the, the so-called land of enchantment, you know, that's the slogan of the place. Um, why was that chosen as the crucible where the, what he called the creation and destruction of primordial matter at the Trinity site? Why did it happen there and not somewhere else? And so that created a larger study. Again, in this wondrous, Mr. Downard had a wondrous ability to enlarge our perspective on what forces are at work here, apart from who's carrying the gun and who drove the getaway car. We really have to expand how we look at these things. And of course, he was mainly concerned with pattern detection. And finally, you write that it is the subconscious that is being addressed in occult ritual. Could you explain what you mean by the group mind or the dreaming mind? And you've already talked a little bit about that. How does the group mind get imprinted? Well, they're going right over our rational speaking mind. And, and this is what a hypnotist does as well with hypnotic cues. And I recommend that people... Uh, make a study of hypnotism, the history of hypnotism and its methodology, along with, I'll add parenthetically, uh, the methodology of uh, high-end advertising. These are expert at the manipulation of, of the mind. And so the dreaming mind, the subconscious mind, the mind that is active while we're asleep, uh, is basically always there. It's always on. Uh, we turn off our rational mind when we sleep. We never turn off our subconscious. And so the question is, is there a language that talks over our rationality, over our, our everyday uh, language, and speaks to that mind? And I would say the entire 
the entire impact of my work and the whole raison d'etre of what I'm doing is basically to try and impart that understanding to people that uh, through these criminal masterminds and these acts of criminality, uh, there is a message being sent to that dreaming mind, and it's a message of overwhelming terrorism, force, and power. Surrender to us. There is no alternative. And that message is imparted by means of words of power, known as twilight language. Uh, in Freemasonry, there's, some, there's a character, a mythical character called Dr. Syntax, and uh, he is there to convey uh, the twilight language. And then, of course, these various symbols, whether it's the swastika, whether it's a hexagram, or whether it's the, the Pentagon shaping itself in a, a five-sided uh, symbol. And so the entire, the entire cumulative effect of this, it becomes a type of language which can be shaped, or at least people believe that it can be shaped. But my question is, if this is all phantasmagoria, and it's just more or less a foray into psychopathology, why then have, uh, and I'm specifically concerned about people in the West and not as familiar as, say, as what's going on in China or India or the Middle East, but in the West, why have people deteriorated to the extent that they have? And so, for example, when I see the Yellow Vest movement erupting in, in France, I have to smile because I don't know every aspect of it, and I certainly don't endorse every aspect of it, but I see that they are willing to, it's seemingly uh, so far, until maybe it's captured, to be a, somewhat of a little bit of an anti-occult movement. Certainly, Macron is an agent of the money power. You know, I, I'm not endorsing vandalism or anything like that, but it just seems like there's a little bit of humanity popping up there and, and, and saying no to this entire system. And something like that gives me hope. But I think that ultimately the manipulation is at a spiritual psychological warfare level, and which is the most dangerous, and uh, we need to be vigilant concerning it. Michael Hoffman, thank you. Thank you for having me today. I've been speaking with Michael Hoffman. Today's show has been The Alchemical Processing of Humanity Through Public Psychodrama. Michael Hoffman is a New York native and former reporter for the New York Bureau of the Associated Press. He studied under Fayez Abu-Jabir at the State University of New York at Oswego. He is the author of nine books, including Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. His most recent is The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. Michael Hoffman's books are available through his website at revisionisthistory.org and from Amazon.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take care
divided we will fall Cause love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? 